Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcasts and give us any constructive feedback. The Herald's Friday the 20th of May 2022 News. Angry Islands Council demands urgent ministerial action over new Calmac lifeline ferry crisis. This article is by Martin Williams. An Islands Council has called on ministers to solve a new lifeline ferry fiasco, which has left one island without a ferry service, another route dropped and a reduced service on one of Scotland's busiest services. Comharley Nan Eliensiar which covers the Western Isles, hit out after MV Hebrides, one of the oldest in the ferry operator Calmac fleet, collided with a pier, causing a series of cancellations to services. All sailings on the Tarbut, Hugh and Lochmadi routes had to be cancelled on Thursday after state-controlled ferry operator Calmac reported that the 37-year-old vessel made contact with Lochmadi Pier on Wednesday night. It comes after the 29-year-old Lord of the Isles was taken out of service due to a fault earlier in the week and is not expected back till next week at the earliest, leaving Eust without a service. Lord of the Isles was withdrawn for repairs to its drencher system in the hope this will allow the vessel to remain in service throughout the summer. It said that it would have little impact because of low usage. The vessel headed for Greenock on Tuesday and, according to Cal Mack, is estimated to return to service on May the 25th at the earliest. The state-controlled Cal Mack apologised and said it was considering moving boats around its network. But islanders are now facing journeys of more than five hours involving multiple ferry crossings to get to the mainland. Western Isles Local Authority, Harl Nan Eliensiar, has reacted with anger at Uist being left without a service and demanded that action is taken to bring in an alternative ferry. It has repeated calls made by other groups to bring in Pentland Ferries MV Pentalina, which has been on the market for between £5.6 million and £7 million, having already successfully tested her with a view to a lease deal. It can carry up to 350 passengers and 58 cars. Despite successful berthing trials, Pentland Ferries, which runs a ferry service connecting Orkney to the mainland, decided not to enter into a leasing agreement in the summer of last year in a dispute over whether it was fit to sail. The council said the withdrawal of two ferries has led to the arrival of a scenario that islanders have feared for so long. The community of Uist is left without a ferry service to the mainland, with both MV Hebrides withdrawn from her services to Yugon Sky and MV Lord of the Isles in Greenock for repairs, rather than on her service from Loch Boysdale to Malig, it said. 
The state-owned ferry operator Calmac is having to handle an ageing ferry fleet with new vessels Glen Sarnax and Hull 802 still languishing in Port Glasgow as the costs of their construction have soared from the original £97 million contract to at least £250 million and delivery is over five years late. Islanders have long made clear the need for greater urgency on addressing the need to order new ferries, a council spokesman said. It said it was seeking urgent action from government to charter the catamaran Pentalina on a charter with the crew provided by Calmac. Comheral Nan LNCR do not believe the Western Isles can wait three years or even the two years before 802 is in service to improve summer capacity and are seeking urgent action from government to charter MV Pentalina on a bare boat charter basis with the crew provided by Calmac, a spokesman said. The vessel is available on this basis and could be in service this summer. Chartering Pentalina would provide vessel cover in the network for summer 2022. Normally, South U.S. Loch Boys-Delta Malig crossing is a 3-hour and 45-minute journey, while North U.S. Loch Maddie to Uig ferry trip takes 1 hour and 45 minutes. But now the options available to people wanting to travel from the U.S. to the mainland are to travel south and take a ferry from Eriskay to Castle Bay on Barra and then a ferry to Oban. This would involve more than five hours of travelling to get to Oban. An alternative is to travel north and take a ferry from Bernerary to Harris and then a 56-mile journey by road to Stornoway and Lewis for a ferry to Ullapool, a total journey of almost five hours. MV Hebrides can carry 612 passengers and 90 cars, was due to be replaced by a new ship, one of the two dual fuel vessels at the centre of a ferry building fiasco that are languishing in Ferguson Marine Shipyard in Port Glasgow on the Clyde. Hebrides underwent a temporary repair on Thursday to allow the vessel to travel to James Watt Dock in Greenock tonight which has specialist welding facilities for permanent repair. A timescale for return to service will be confirmed once full assessment of required repairs has been carried out. The disruption has meant that one of the busiest Calmac routes to and from Arran has been reduced to one vessel. Meanwhile, services on the Ardrossan to Campbelltown route will be cancelled from Friday. Almost 1,000 passengers and 338 cars had their bookings on the Loch Boylesdale to Malig ferry service abruptly cancelled as a result of the Lord of the Isles being withdrawn from service for eight days. In addition, 698 metres of commercial space, equivalent to about 26 trailer loads, were cancelled, throwing island businesses into disarray. The Council Chairman of Transportation and Infrastructure, Eusdian Robertson, said The Scottish ferry crisis is being experienced by islanders every day. It is not a newspaper headline, it is a harsh reality and we need government to take decisive steps to secure the future of the islands their ferry contract is supposed to serve. While our call is for investment in new ferries, this is still jam tomorrow. 
We need to see urgency and it is time for government to put their money where their mouth is in terms of taking short-term action. It is clear finding second-hand vessels is difficult, but there is one ferry available today that has been tested on a number of routes. Both Transport Scotland and Calmac were happy to see MV Pentalina join the fleet on the basis of a crewed charter from Pentland Ferries, so there cannot be any reasonable argument for not chartering this vessel on the basis of it being crewed by Calmac. Comharl Nan Elian are calling on Scottish Government to stop making excuses and act now by chartering MV Pentalina. After the sidelining of MV Hebrides, Carmack said that to protect lifeline services, MV Isle of Arran will be redeployed from their Dross and Brodick Campbelltown route to cover the Kennecraig Isley service, with MV Hebridean Islands moving from Isley to cover the Sky Triangle. MV Loch Brewsta will operate additional sailings, will operate on Barra Eriski. MV Caledonian Isles sailings will continue to operate as scheduled and MV Loch Linney will act as a second vessel on the Loch Ranza Cleonag route to support services to and from Arran. The ferry operator said extra capacity is available on the Ullapool Stornoway route tonight and Sunday night. There will also be an additional passenger sailing on Saturday night. A spokesperson for Calmac said, This is a significant disruption for our communities and we sincerely apologise for this at what is already a very difficult time for them with the loss of MV Lord of the Isles. Our immediate priority is to ensure lifeline services such as food supplies and urgent medical care can be transported. Removing vessels from routes is always a very difficult decision and one we would rather not make, but our options are extremely limited and this is the only way to protect lifeline services at short notice. This redeployment means that all islands will continue to receive a service during the current disruption. We are keeping customers informed and will provide another update as soon as a full assessment of the required repairs has been completed in Greenock. This article is by Martin Williams. The Herald, Wednesday the 25th of May 2022 News. Covid inquiry won't shy away from probing wrong decisions. This article is by Andrew Learmonth. The chair of Scotland's coronavirus inquiry has promised bereaved families that she won't shy away from uncovering the Scottish Government's wrong decisions. Lady Poole was speaking as the probe examining the strategic response to the pandemic in Scotland moved into its next phase. The Senator of the College of Justice said responding appropriately to the COVID-19 pandemic has been a huge challenge. In Scotland, all of us have been affected by the pandemic and the measures taken to handle it. The suffering and the hardship experienced by many across the country Unprecedented. COVID-19 has left loss, heartbreak and tragedy in its wake. I want to take this opportunity to express my condolences to all those who have suffered, particularly to those who have lost people they love. People have legitimate questions about the handling of the pandemic in Scotland. This inquiry has been set up to provide answers. 
My role as chair of the Scottish COVID-19 inquiry is to investigate aspects of the devolved response to the pandemic in Scotland and report about lessons learned. The inquiry will not shy away from making findings where wrong decisions were made or where the response was inadequate or fell short. The inquiry has 12 terms of reference covering different strategic decisions taken by the Scottish Government. The judge will look at the lockdown and the other restrictions in place and the rules around testing, outbreak management and self-isolation. The inquiry will also probe the transfer of residents to or from care homes or nursing homes, as well as the treatment and care of residents, restrictions on visiting, infection prevention and control and inspections. Lady Poole said the terms of reference would be flexible and not a definitive list of every issue or every person that the inquiry will consider. She added, instead, they specify areas of investigation and the inquiry will interpret them with flexibility to ensure particular groups or themes are not excluded. Human rights and equalities are important to the inquiry and will be taken into account throughout its work. The inquiry is still in its establishment phase and is currently recruiting a team and putting in place premises and vital infrastructure. As part of the planning process, the inquiry commissioned introductory scoping research from academic institutions, including the Universities of Dundee, Edinburgh, Edinburgh Napier, Glasgow, Highlands and Islands and Birmingham. Lady Poole said we will investigate the facts about the handling of the pandemic to find out what lessons have been learned, both positive and negative, and we will make recommendations for the future. Amar Anwar, the lawyer representing the COVID-19 bereaved families for justice, said they were looking for action from the inquiry. He said the families were anxious that it would not be as wide-ranging and robust as had been promised. Mr Anwar added, We wrote to Lady Poole, the First Minister as well as the Lord Advocate, seeking to clarify what they intended to do. Last week we met with the Lord Advocate to allay some of those concerns. Whilst the families welcome the sentiment expressed by the inquiry, they are at this stage only words. The families expect to see action and for Her Ladyship to fulfil the promise of the bereaved families being front and centre of the inquiry. This article is by Andrew Learmonth. The Herald, Friday the 20th of May 2022. News. Dunfermline, town awarded city status as part of Platinum Jubilee celebrations. This article is by Jodie Harrison. The former Royal Borough of Dunfermline is being granted city status as part of the Queen's Platinum Jubilee celebrations. The Fife Town is one of several locations in the UK and further afield being bestowed the honour to mark the monarch's 70 years on the throne. A record number of eight places are being made cities with Bangor in Northern Ireland, Colchester, Doncaster and Milton Keynes in England and Wrexham in Wales, all being similarly honoured along with Douglas on the Isle of Man and Stanley in the Falkland Islands. 
Scottish Secretary Alistair Jack offered his warmest congratulations to Dunfermline, which was one of the seats of the Kings of Scotland in the Middle Ages, with Robert the Bruce buried in Dunfermline Abbey after his death in 1329. Mr Jack said, Being awarded city status can give places a real boost, from helping grow the local economy to raising its profile to instilling civic pride. For a place with such royal, rich history, it is fitting that Dunfermline is becoming a city as we celebrate our longest-serving Monarch's Platinum Jubilee. Its lovely green spaces and fantastic cultural attractions will ensure that this new city thrives well into the future. He added that businesses and communities in the area will enjoy the benefits of this prestigious new title. Provost of Fife, Jim Leishman, welcomed the announcement, saying the official title of City will give Dunfermline the wider recognition that it deserves as one of the fastest growing urban areas in Scotland, offering all the amenities that any modern city could hope for. City status will help us grow economically and as a tourist destination and will have a positive impact on Dunfermline and the surroundings. Of course, the people of Dunfermline have always known that Dunfermline is a city. That's why we have the city car park, the city hotel and city cabs. But it's great to finally get official recognition of this. Those bidding for city status as part of the Platinum Jubilee Civic Honours competition were asked to highlight their royal associations, as well as showcase their unique communities and distinct local identity. While similar contests have been held in the past, this was the first one to be opened up to towns from overseas territories and Crown dependencies, resulting in Stanley and Douglas being included. Steve Barclay, Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, said he is delighted that a record number of locations have been awarded the prestigious city status as part of Her Majesty the Queen's Platinum Jubilee celebrations. He added, what was clear to me during the process of assessing each application was the pride that people felt for their communities, local cultural heritage and the royal family. As we celebrate Her Majesty the Queen's colossal contribution to society, I am thrilled that we are able to recognise some of the many places that make Britain great. It is also incredibly reflective of Her Majesty's global outlook and years of international service that applicants from the overseas territories and Crown dependencies have been selected as winners for the first time. This article is by Jodie Harrison. The Herald, Wednesday the 25th of May 2022, News. Glasgow's People's Palace in line for major refurbishment. This article is by Deborah Anderson. The People's Palace in Winter Gardens is next in line for a massive refurbishment following the success of the revamped borough collection. Chief Executive of Glasgow Life, Susan Dayen, said the future of the historic landmarks on Glasgow Green, which have fallen into decline in modern times, would be open to consultation this week. It is understood upwards of £20 million will be needed to bring the buildings which date from 1898 up to modern-day standards after they were closed in 2018. 
Applications are expected to be made within the next month to secure funding for the buildings. It is hoped the UK government will support the project via the next phase of its £4.8 billion levelling up fund, which closes for applications in July. The project follows on from the successful £69 million refurbishment of the Borough Collection, which attracted almost 125,000 visitors in its first 50 days since reopening on March the 29th. The People's Palace was reopened for several months last year but had to be closed down again for emergency repairs after staff discovered that plaster was falling off its ceiling. Ms Dayan said the next big project will be the People's Palace and the Winter Gardens. We are going to be announcing a consultation on their future this week. We will be building the findings into a funding application that we are working on at the moment that we hope to put in towards the end of the summer. The Council has already committed £2.9 million worth of investment for restoration work and we want to use that as a lever for other national funding. Ms Dian said the People's Palace is at the heart of Glasgow Green and tells the story of the city, its culture and its people. As a child of Glasgow, it's very important to me personally, she added. Anybody who has lived or grown up in the city will have enormous emotional ties to the People's Palace. Heritage isn't just about built heritage. The People's Palace tells the stories of Glasgow, but we have to ensure that those stories are contemporary and that they reflect where Glasgow is today. From a cultural perspective in Glasgow, it's a project that we really want to prioritise and the next one we've really got in our sights. We've always been committed to the People's Palace. We've said that on many occasions. I would hope that there's been no question marks over its future. But this next phase will hopefully start to demonstrate that we mean what we say and that we're working on it as our next priority. The public can share their thoughts by completing an online survey as well as attending Out in the Open, an outdoor event to be held at Glasgow Green on Saturday the 11th of June. Two public workshops will also be held next month. Bailey Annette Christie, Chair of Glasgow Life, said the People's Palace and Winter Gardens is one of the most treasured spaces. It holds a special place in the hearts of Glaswegians and is much loved by visitors to the city. It has a proud reputation as the home of Glasgow's social history, a museum that tells the city's story and where people can see something of their family's life in the many wonderful displays on show. She added, as a historic building, substantial investment is required to secure the sustainable future of the People's Palace and Winter Gardens. Together with Glasgow City Council, Glasgow Life is committed to preserving these invaluable heritage assets for future generations. We recognise the significant public affection that exists for both spaces and our approach will ensure local people can have a say in shaping their future. The hugely successful refurbishment of the Borough Collection shows the scale of our ambition to protect Glasgow's outstanding cultural heritage. In partnership with others, our focus is now firmly on ensuring People's Palace continues to provide a fit-for-purpose home for these cherished, important collections. An online survey is now open, and new practice is also inviting people who live in the Carlton Ward 
where People's Palace and Winter Gardens is located and surrounding areas to apply to attend two public workshops taking place on June the 28th and 29th. This article is by Deborah Anderson. Recorded on the Herald on the 25th of May 2022 from the sports section, Andy Murray insists Wimbledon is not an exhibition over ranking points row by Hayley Milne. Two-time winner Andy Murray has insisted Wimbledon will never be an exhibition amid the ongoing row over its lack of ranking points. The WTA and ATP will not offer any points for the All England Club tournament after Wimbledon Chiefs made the decision to ban Russia and Belarusian players from competing due to the war in Ukraine. Former world number one Naomi Osaka ended on Monday she may skip the third Grand Slam of the season because the absence of ranking points means it's more like an exhibition, a phrase echoed by British number one Cameron Norrie. However, Murray believes the prestige of winning a Wimbledon title, as he did in 2013 and 2016, should eclipse any number of ranking points. In this series of posts on his official Twitter account, the 35-year-old Scott wrote, I follow golf very closely and have no idea how many ranking points the winner of the app at the Masters gets. Me and my friends love football and none of us know or care how many ranking points a team gets for winning the at FIFA World Cup. But I could tell you exactly who won the World Cup in the Masters. I'd hazard a guess that most people watching in Centre Court at Wimbledon in a few weeks' time wouldn't know or care about how many ranking points a player gets for winning a third round match. But I guarantee they will remember who wins. At Wimbledon will never be an exhibition and will never feel like an exhibition. The end. The article is by Hayley Milne. Hail Scotland recorded on Wednesday 25th of May 2022. Arts and Entertainments. New Books, a captivating new collection of short stories takes a peek behind the curtains of the secret lives of church ladies. By Herald Magazine. Fiction. 1. The Secret Lives of Church Ladies by Disha Filyaw is published in hardback by Pushkin 1. Priced £14.99. Ebook £9.99. The phrase church ladies conjures up a variety of images according to the reader's own cultural understanding of the church. The Secret Lives of Church Ladies is a modern glimpse into the deeper feelings and emotions of a group of black female friends linked by their childhood membership of a congregation. Women meet every New Year's Eve when they can express their secret desires, forbidden loves and transgressive thoughts. Funny, affectionate, startling, even shocking, they share things we may think but can only say to our closest confidants. The umbrella of the ladies' church connection adds another dimension to this well-crafted collection of stories, the all-pervading sense that someone else, God perhaps, is listening. 9 out of 10, review by Victoria Barry. 2. Throne by Sarah Cox is published in hardback by Coronet, price £14.99, ebook £6.99. Wannabe authors are often told to write about what they know. Hard to tell how much Radio 2 DJ and broadcaster Sarah Cox knows about being the manager of a community centre, but her life lessons and presenting experience from the Great Pottery Throwdown has definitely come up trumps. Weaving the stories of four women who decide to sign up for a local pottery class, she's created a welcoming world full of wonder and hope, set against gritty real-life problems that are often kept secret. It's a pleasure to get to know the characters of Throne, especially Becky, a single mum who is learning about herself and growing stronger and more independent every day, and Sheila, who is yearning to start a new life in Spain, but needs to get her husband to agree. A great summer read, with Cox's voice jumping off the page. 9 out of 10, review by Rachel Howdle. 
3. Idol by Louise O'Neill is published in hardback by Bantam Press, priced £14.99, ebook £5.99. With conversations around consent, cancel culture and wellness, Idol is a book firmly placed in the now. Samantha Miller is a world-famous wellness guru, but when she publishes an essay about a sexual awakening she had with her teenage best friend, the ex-friend gets in touch to say she doesn't remember it the same way, threatening to topple everything Samantha has built. It's a cleverly constructed story told from Samantha's perspective, so we're initially on her side only to realise how insidious her actions are and the darkness that lies within. It brings up interesting questions about the modern cult of wellness, skewering well-known lifestyle idols in the process, but while incredibly readable, the story meanders in the middle. Ultimately, it builds up to a satisfying conclusion, one you can't help but read with gritted teeth as the action unfolds, but it takes a bit too long to get there. 7 out of 10, review by Prudence Wade. Non-fiction, 4. This is Not a Pity Memoir by Abby Morgan. It's published in hardback by John Murray Press, priced £12.99, ebook £8.49. Pity aside, it's impossible not to feel a huge amount of sympathy for Abby Morgan, whose long-term partner, actor Jacob Krzyzewski, collapses and is put into an induced coma after complications caused by a drug used to treat his multiple sclerosis. When he wakes months later, Krzyzewski suffers a rare psychological condition that puts an immense strain on their relationship, and Morgan receives a devastating diagnosis of her own, but she continues to rally friends, family and the couple's two children to battle a disease with crushing effects, not just for the patient, but everyone around them. As a scriptwriter, Morgan knows how to craft dramatic prose. She doesn't pull any punches. Describing with unflinching honesty the anger and resentment that bubbles up during some of her darkest moments, interspersed with glimpses of the couple's glamorous life, rubbing shoulders with A-listers and walking Hollywood red carpets before MS turned her world upside down, it makes for a captivating, heartbreaking but ultimately hopeful read that will resonate with anyone who's had to cope with the illness of a loved one. 9 out of 10, review by Katie Wright. Children's Book of the Week, 5. When Women Were Dragons by Kelly Barnhill is published in hardback by Hotkey Books, priced £14.99, ebook £9.99. The title of When Women Were Dragons might suggest a fantasy novel, but beneath the surface lurks a living and fire-breathing story of women's battle for equality. In this book, Kelly Barnhill would have us believe women have dragons inside them, helping them battle to right inequalities and crush stereotypes. At the centre of this upheaval is Alex Green, whose aunt becomes a dragon and her mother dies of cancer, all the time bringing up younger sister Beatrice after they are abandoned by their father. Barnhill's story is of family, love in its many forms, and the female members of that family who fight for what they think is right. The reader is born along in the peaks and troughs of a battle for recognition, as if they were riding a dragon through the skies. 8 out of 10. Review by Roddy Brooks. By Herald Magazine. From the Herald Scotland. Thursday... The 26th of May 2022, from the news section, BBC upholds J.K. Rowling transgender discussion complaint by Herald staff online. The BBC has said it was wrong for a Radio 4 programme to claim that J.K. Rowling had a very unpopular opinion regarding gender identity. The Broadcasters Executive Complaints Unit said there was no conclusive evidence that those with a different view to the Harry Potter writer represented a majority. However, they dismissed complaints that it was wrong to include her in a discussion which also took in sex offender R&B artist R. Kelly, 
paedophile sculptor, sculptor Eric Gill and Adolf Hitler. During a feature in Front Row, presenter Tom Sutcliffe was interviewing the philosopher Professor Eric Hatala Mates about his new book, Drawing the Line, which explores cancel culture and whether it is possible to separate art from the artist. The academic used Ms Rowling as a case study because of the criticism she has attracted for her views on gender identity. During the interview, Mr Sutcliffe asked the professor, and do you think there's a major philosophical distinction between artists who have committed crimes, have been found guilty of crimes, and artists who simply have unpopular opinions? You bring up the case of J.K. Rowling, who clearly has a very unpopular opinion regarding gender identity, and has, as a consequence of that, faced severe and serious criticism. Are those the same things? The interview prompted around 584 complaints, with Mumsnet and others urging angry listeners to contact the BBC. The complaint has now been upheld by the Broadcaster Executive Complaint Unit. In their latest fortnightly complaints report, they said it was legitimate to discuss J.K. Rowling because she features in the interviewee's book, a fact reflected in Mr Sutcliffe's question. They added, As to comparing her case with others, the ECU noted that Mr Sutcliffe did so in the context of distinguishing between expressing opinions, as J.K. Rowling had done, and committing criminal acts, and considered that this was neither harmful nor offensive. The ECU agreed, however, that Mr Sutcliffe's reference to a very unpopular opinion was potentially misleading because, while it had clearly proved unobjectionable to some, there was no conclusive evidence that the objectors represented a majority. Shortly after the programme, Mr Sutcliffe appeared on Radio 4's feedback and acknowledged that he should have acknowledged that he should have acknowledged that many people shared the view expressed by J.K. Rowling and that he should have reflected that view. The ECU said this was sufficient to resolve the issues of inaccuracy and impartiality raised by the complaint. Ms Rowling has been a fierce critic of plans to reform Scotland's gender laws. Currently, under the 2004 Gender Recognition Act, trans people seeking a gender recognition certificate must have a formal diagnosis of gender dysphoria and live in their acquired gender for two years. The Scottish Government's new proposals will remove the need for medical reports and reduce the waiting time to a minimum of three months, with a reflection period of a further three months. The age at which people can apply would be reduced from 18 to 16. In a tweet, Ms Rowling said, The law at Nicola Sturgeon is trying to pass in Scotland will harm the most vulnerable women in society, those seeking help after male violence slash rape, and incarcerated women. Statistics show that imprisoned women are already far more likely to have been previously abused. The author was also embroiled in a row with Sir Keir Stammer after accusing the Labour Party leader of failing to defend women's rights. In an interview with the Times, he said, Trans women are women, according to statute. Ms Rowling tweeted, At Keir Starmer publicly misrepresent equalities law, and yet another indication that the Labour Party can no longer be counted on to defend women's rights. And that article is by The Herald Online. From The Herald Scotland, Monday the 26th of May 2022, from the news section, Under Fire Health Minister visits centre targeted by anti-abortion protesters. Women's Health Minister Marie Todd has visited staff at a health centre targeted by disruptive anti-abortion protesters. 
Christian preachers have staged noisy demonstrations outside the Sandiford Clinic in Glasgow's West End twice in the past month. Both times, the health board say, the men with loudspeakers have hectored people entering the facility and prevented staff from doing their job. The SNP politician said women must have the right to access, access abortion without fear or intimidation. Ms Todd said the government strongly supported the introduction of buffer zones but needed to find a way to bring them in that was capable of withstanding legal challenge. The Sandiford Clinic, which provides a range of sexual, reproductive and emotional health services, including counselling for rape, sexual assault, sexual abuse and childhood sexual abuse, was targeted most recently on Wednesday. While there have been increasingly large protests outside hospitals across Scotland in recent months, it is the first time in years that anti-abortion campaigners have come to the clinic. The first demonstration prompted Back Off Scotland, who have long campaigned for buffer zones, to call for Ms Todd to resign. This is being allowed and emboldened under her watch, they said. Last week, Green MSP Jelly Mackay launched a consultation on her members' bill that, if approved, would put in place 150 metre zones around the healthcare facilities that provide abortions. The Scottish Government has yet to formally support Ms Mackay's proposals. In November last year, ministers said it would be for councils to pass bylaws to protect specific sites rather than have a nationwide system. However, COSLA, the umbrella organisation for Scottish local authorities, has previously warned that its legal advice is unequivocal and confirms that local authorities cannot use bylaws to implement buffer zones at NIH reproductive health facilities. Nicola Sturgeon recently agreed to chair an emergent summer summit on the issue. Speaking after a visit to the Sandyford Clinic and Queen Elizabeth University Hospital, where she spoke to staff providing abortion health care, Ms Todd said, Women must have the right to access abortion without fear or intimidation. And it goes without saying that the same goes for healthcare staff doing their job. Today I spoke to staff at Sandyford Clinic in Glasgow, who have had to work in the shadow of two recent protests, and heard from them and also staff at the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital about the damaging impact it can have. We've said repeatedly that the place to protest is at Parliament, where the legislation is made, not where people are receiving healthcare. We strongly support the introduction of buffer zones, welcome Jelly Mackay, MSPs, bill consultation, and will continue to explore how the Scottish Parliament can legislate in a way that is effective and capable of withstanding legal challenge. Alongside this, the Scottish Government continues to work to make arrangements for a First Minister convened summit at the end of June to discuss abortion rights issues. Last month, Nicola Sturgeon claimed progress in implementing buffer zones was being stalled because of a need to comply with ACHR. The First Minister said that she wanted to make progress as quickly as possible, but the government could not just magic away the legal considerations, and she does not want to pass legislation that would be open to challenges in court. However, campaigners point to Northern Ireland, where the Assembly has already passed legislation to introduce buffer zones around abortion clinics. Though the Attorney General for Northern Ireland recently asked the Supreme Court to consider whether the bill implementing buffer zones was in proportionate interference, and that story was by Andrew Learmonth. Recorded from the Herald on the 26th of May 2022. From the Sports section. Airdrieonians confirm ex-Rangers kid Rhys McCabe as player manager. By Ewan Payton. Rhys McCabe has been appointed as the new player manager of Airdrieonians. 
The 29-year-old who started his career at Rangers takes over the reins of the League One club from Ian Murray, who recently left for Wraith Rovers. McClabe played for several other high-profile clubs in his career, including Sheffield Wednesday and Portsmouth. He takes on his first role in management before his 30th birthday, though, but will continue to play his part on the pitch. Diamond's club captain, Callum Fordyce, has been appointed as player assistant. McCabe told AirdrieFC.com, It's good to get signed up and get things over the line as quick as we have, so I'm excited, raring to go and looking forward to getting onto the pitch. I've always made it clear that towards the latter stages of my career, it was an avenue I'd like to go down. Obviously, the opportunity has come up to dive straight in, so it's one that I'm excited about. That article was by Ewan Payton. Recorded from the Herald on the 26th of May 2022. From the sports section, Scotland fans urged to sing Ukrainian national anthem in show of solidarity amid Russian invasion. By Ewan Payton. Scotland fans have been urged to stand in solidarity with their Ukrainian counterparts next week as the teams face each other in the World Cup playoffs. Steve Clark's men will face Ukraine at Hamden next Wednesday at the semi-final stage with a one-off match against Wales for a place at Qatar 2022 at stake. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is still ongoing, having started in February this year. And ahead of next week's delayed game, Scotland supporters have been urged to sing the Ukrainian national anthem as a show of unity between the countries. Shene Vimerla Ukraini is the title of the song. Duolinga, the language education service, has arranged for members of the Tartan army to be given lyrics to the anthem. Colin Watkins, UK county country manager at Duolingo, said, Football unites people, with the World Cup the pinnacle for this. But we all know this match carries even more significance and the eyes of the world will be watching. We want all Scotland fans and all football fans to show their solidarity in song and show the world they, they're united with Ukraine through language. That article was by Ewan Payton. Hello, this is your reader Jackie. The Herald, Monday the 30th of May 2022. News. Alzheimer's disease Dundee University study prevention hopes. This article is by Caroline Wilson. A Scots neuroscientist is aiming to find out why a protective barrier in the brain becomes leaky in people with Alzheimer's, allowing toxic molecules to enter. Dr Fiona McLean from the University of Dundee hopes her study will provide insights that could lead to treatments being developed which can slow down, stop or even reverse this happening. Amyloid is a hallmark protein that builds up in the brains of people with Alzheimer's disease, which is the most common cause of dementia. Researchers think that this sets off other damaging processes, which leads to symptoms such as memory loss and confusion. In 80-90% to of Alzheimer's cases, amyloid clumps are also found embedded in blood vessels within the brain. A specialised group of cells form a barrier between the blood vessels and the nerve cells called the blood-brain barrier, which determines what gets in and what doesn't. In people with Alzheimer's, this barrier deteriorates, allowing toxic substances to enter. Dr McLean's research will look at when and how the build-up of amyloid causes the blood-brain barrier to break down. She has been given a £235,000 grant 
to carry out the pioneering study as part of Alzheimer's Research UK's £2 million commitment to fund 15 new research projects, launched to coincide with the start of Dementia Awareness Week. Dr McLean said, Funding from Alzheimer's Research UK has allowed me to develop my research that could ultimately help the search for future dementia treatments. Meanwhile, Scots living with dementia, along with their carers, are being invited to join a new national advisory panel set up to help inform services for people affected by the disease. The Scottish Government is launching an application scheme with the expectation that the new panel will be established before the end of the year. Alzheimer's Scotland is campaigning for fairer care home fees for people with advanced dementia who require 24-hour care, which is backed by the Herald. The charity says ministers in Scotland have failed to address a massive inequity in health and social care, which sees 10,000 people with advanced dementia pay a combined total of almost £51 million a year for their care. A landmark report published in 2019 after a working group led by former First Minister Henley McLeish was established, warned that sufferers were being let down by a system that classes them as having social care and not health care needs. It means they are not eligible to have their care costs met by the NHS in the way that people with other progressive terminal illnesses are. The Scottish Government is due to unveil the blueprint for a new national care service, which Alzheimer's Scotland hopes will lead to a change in how dementia care is funded. Minister for Mental Wellbeing and Social Care Kevin Stewart said the voice of experience is a crucial part of our policy-making process and making sure that it is factored in as early as possible in making important decisions is key to improving services across the country. To apply to be part of the lived experience panel or for more information, send an email to dementiapolicy at gov.scot. That is dementiapolicy at gov.scot. This article is by Caroline Wilson. The Herald Monday the 30th of May 2022 News Education in Scotland Phonics failures mean whole classes reaching secondary without reading skills. This article is by John Paul Holden. Whole classes of pupils are leaving primary school without basic reading skills because of a failure to focus on systematic synthetic phonics. SSP, according to a teaching consultant. Anne Glenny has warned that Scotland is falling behind England, where staff are required to use the method and all children in year one undergo a screening check. She also said teachers were not being provided with the professional training necessary for optimal results in the classroom. SSP aims to help pupils master the relationships between sounds phonemes and letters, graphemes. For example, children are taught to break up bat into its three letters, pronounce a phoneme for each letter in turn and then blend the phonemes together, 
to form the word. The approach has been a topic of fierce debate in recent years. Supporters say it is crucial to developing a strong foundation in literacy. However, critics insist it does not nurture a love of reading and argue that engaging with whole texts, such as books, should come first. Earlier this year, experts at the University College London, the UCL, Institute of Education, published research that called on UK ministers to drop what they described as the increasingly narrow focus on synthetic phonics. They also claimed that analysis of reviews, trials and data suggested reading instruction in England may even have been less successful since the method was adopted. Professor Dominic Wise, co-author of the UCL study, said our view is that the system doesn't give teachers enough flexibility to do what they think is best for their pupils, nor to encourage pupils to enjoy reading. However, Ms Glenny, who trains teachers in SSP and in areas such as reading for pleasure and comprehension, challenged Professor Wise's characterisation. She said synthetic phonics is a body of knowledge that should be included in the curriculum and taught to every child. Essentially, it's learning letters and sounds of the alphabetic code of English. It's what we used to read and what we used to spell. We read for meaning, absolutely, but you can't understand if you can't get the words off the page. Synthetic phonics is the mechanics of being able to get the words off the page. The problem we have in most Scottish classrooms is we are teaching a bit of phonics, but we're also teaching sight words. We're teaching children to memorise words as if they're pictures. We're teaching multi-cueing. It's the mix of methods, the balanced approach, a bit of phonics on the side. But what we're saying is that within that core period of reading instruction within the school day, teaching should be limited to systematic synthetic phonics. Ms Glennie also rejected claims that focusing on SSP would lead to narrower learning experiences. A child will never be prevented from reading any other book in the classroom, she added. It's only restricted to systematic synthetic phonics for reading instruction. It's like stabilisers on a bike. As soon as a child knows they have a good solid basic code under their belt, the stabilisers are off and from the age of P3, you're a free reader. Ms Glennie told the Herald it was clear the English focus on SSP had begun to pay dividends. She said there are schools in England where they're getting 96 97% of their children at the end of primary reading to the equivalent of our second level, and that schools, even where 60% of the children might be disadvantaged or where 60% have English as a second language. Meanwhile, in Scotland, I'm increasingly being contacted by secondary teachers who are stuck because they've got whole classes coming into secondary schools who cannot read and who need intervention. So they can't even access the curriculum and that's because the job's not being done properly in primary. And I say that as a primary teacher. Ms Glennie, who is based on Lewis, previously lodged a petition that urged Parliament to pursue the rollout of SSP-based professional learning and called for moves to ensure the approach is included in initial teacher education 
ITE programmes. However, Stephen Kerr, convener of Holyrood's Education, Children and Young People Committee, told her in a letter that MSPs had no current plans to scrutinise ITE. He also confirmed the petition had been closed. Ms Glennie said, I can resubmit on the same topic in a year's time, which I've no doubt I'll have to do. In the meantime, I am starting a Right to Read Scotland campaign to raise awareness among teachers and parents in particular about whether children are being taught using the most effective research and methods. A Scottish Government spokesperson said, We recognise that phonics instruction is an important part of a successful literacy strategy which should include all five pillars of literacy. Phonomic awareness, phonics, vocabulary, fluency and comprehension, as well as a reading for pleasure. This is the balanced approach taken in Scotland's schools. This article is by John Paul Holden. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 30th of May 2022, from the sports section, Champions League final organisers to meet to discuss treatment of Liverpool fans. The chaotic scenes which marred Saturday's Champions League final at the Stade de France will come under the spotlight at a meeting in Paris on Monday. Representatives from local authorities, police and final organisers are to meet in the French capital from 10am BST, the PA news agency understands, to review events outside the stadium during which Liverpool fans queuing for admission were tear-gassed. The move comes amid concerted calls for an investigation from British MPs, amid condemnation of the way the Premier League club's supporters were treated, with local authorities claiming long delays were caused by some trying to gain entry using fake tickets. Ian Byrne, the Labour MP for Liverpool West Derby, attended the match in Paris and said he had never witnessed such scenes since the 1989 Hillsborough disaster. He has written to the Foreign Secretary Liz Trust with a list of seven demands, including a formal probe and apologies aimed at UEFA and the French authorities. In his letter, he said, The French authorities and UEFA are quite simply covering their own backs with this narrative. As a Liverpool fan, I was in Paris for the match, and I can honestly say that the situation outside the ground was one of the most horrendous experiences of my life, and as a Hillsborough survivor, I do not make this comment lightly. Merseyside police observers described the behaviour of the vast majority of supporters as exemplary, while their counterparts from the Paris prefecture said some had employed strong force in a bid to get into the stadium. Liverpool, who lost 1-0 to Real Madrid in Paris, said on Saturday night they had officially requested a formal investigation into the causes of these unacceptable issues, while CEO Billy Hogan told LFC TV the treatment of fans was absolutely unacceptable and that people's safety was put at risk. Culture Secretary Nadine Doris said, I urge UEFA to launch a formal investigation into what went wrong and why, in coordination with stadium staff, the French police, the French Football Federation, Merseyside Police and Liverpool Football Club. It is in the interest of everyone involved to understand what happened and to learn lessons from these events. And that article was unattributed. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 30th of May 2022, from the Voices section, Issue of the Day, The Elgin Marbles Row Deepens, by Maureen Sugden. 
In a dispute that has rumbled through the ages, rather than there being any sign of resolution, the row over the Elgin marbles has now deepened. What are they? Also known as the Parthenon marbles, they're a collection of stone sculptures kept in the British Museum in London for over 200 years, featuring different types of marble-like architectural decoration from the Temple of Athena, the Parthenon, on the Acropolis in Athens, made between 447 BC and 432 BC. Such as, they consist of a frieze, a series of metopes, sculptured leaf panels, and figures of the gods and legendary heroes from the temple's pediments. How did they arrive in the UK? The collection from both the Parthenon and other sacred and ceremonial buildings on the Acropolis of Athens was controversially procured by the Fife nobleman Lord Elgin in the early 1800s. He said he was concerned about the damage to important artworks and acted amid fears they would be destroyed. However, the removal sparked controversy and so began the debate about who ought to be the rightful owner of such cultural antiquities. Among his opponents, Lord Byron, regarded as one of the greatest English poets in history, was a bitter opponent of Lord Elgin, said to be incandescent with Elgin's agent, gave him a tour of the Parthenon, during which he became aware of the missing friezes and sculptures. He penned a poem, The Curse of Minerva, to decry Elgin's actions. When did the artefacts move to the museum? The collection was initially private, but Lord Elgin later sold it to the Crown for £35,000. The Greek government had frequently called for the return of the marbles, but the British Museum state Lord Elgin acted with the full knowledge and permission of the legal authorities of the day in both Athens and London, and that his activities were thoroughly investigated by Parliament and found to be entirely illegal. Following a vote, the museum was allocated funds to acquire the marbles in 1816. Now, UNESCO, United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organisation, has again called on the UK and Greece to resolve the dispute, but Greece has now rejected a claim by the museum's deputy director, Dr Jonathan Williams, who told the annual meeting of, meeting of UNESCO heritage delegates, these objects were not at all hacked from the building as been suggested, adding, much of the fees was in fact removed from the rubble around the Parthenon. What did Greece say? Greece's cultural minister, Lena Mendoni, told the Guardian, Lord Ergun used illicit and inequitable means to seize and export the Parthenon sculptures without real legal permission to do so, in a blatant act of serial theft. And so the row goes on. Meanwhile, the new Acropolis Museum in Athens, close to the ancient site, has a large area devoted to the Parthenon, and the pieces of Lord Elgin are represented by veiled plaster casts. And that piece was by Maureen Sugden. From the National, Monday the 30th of May 2022, from the comment section, Kirsty Strickland, Tories who carry on defending Johnson will pay the price, by columnist Kirsty Strickland. At a press conference after the publication of the Sue Gray report, Boris Johnson offered a characteristically arrogant defence of his refusal to resign over the families it highlighted. No matter how bitter and painful the conclusions of the Sugrade report may be, how humbling they are, I've got to keep moving forward, he said. The Prime Minister seems to believe there is something noble about his unwillingness to accept responsibility for Partygate. 
In his mind, he remains in post not out of naked self-interest, but a sense of duty. What a load of nonsense. It's a similarly idiotic flow of logic to that which Douglas Ross has tried, with enormous difficulty, to use to explain his many U-turns over Johnson's fitness for office. His latest is that the Prime Minister should only be forced out once the war in Ukraine is over. As if the guy who couldn't get through a working day without some lockdown flouting wine is somehow integral to the war effort. The message from Johnson and his allies over recent days has been clear. It's time to move on. That might be what they would like to happen, but there is no sign as yet that it will. Yesterday's newspapers were filled with fresh revelations about Partygate. The Sunday Times reported that the Prime Minister's wife, Carrie Johnson, held a second law-breaking party in the number 10 flat on her husband's birthday on June 19, 2020. This claim has reunited to criticism of both the Metropolitan Police and Sue Gray's failure to properly investigate the ABBA party, held to celebrate the departure of former aide Dominic Cummings. The allegations centre around a series of previously unseen text messages offered by an aide to both the police and the Green investigation that apparently weren't followed up by either. The messages are said to show that Carrie Johnson was in the, in the number 10 flat with several flen- friends on the night of the Prime Minister's birthday and that Boris Johnson went up to the flat while they were there. At the time, the rules stated that events for two or more people indoors were banned except for work purposes. Both this and the fresh allegations that number 10 pressurised Sue Gray to alter her report before publication made an uncomfortable Sunday morning interview round for the beleaguered Tory representative sent out to defend the latest scandal. It was a point made by Mark Mark Harper MP who said he was fed up with his colleagues being asked to go on television day after day and saying things that are frankly ridiculous and defending the indefensible. There has been understandable anger at the way in which Boris Johnson has hung on when any other leader would be long gone by now. But this amazing feat of political resilience isn't without its risks. Poll after poll demonstrates two things very clearly. Firstly, the Conservative Party looks set to lose most of the seats they gained at the last general election. Secondly, a majority of the public believes Boris Johnson has lied for Partygate and should resign. By refusing to do the decent and honourable thing, Johnson has given this scandal a long shelf life and has cemented his own shoddy conduct in the minds of voters. The inaction of his colleagues and their simpering, cowardly, blind loyalty to the law-breaking Prime Minister means his death spiral has now become theirs too. Not only are many of his sycophantic defenders set to lose their seats at the next general election, they were also destined for months, if not years, of ritual humiliation in the process. They will continue to defend the indefensible because the devil doesn't offer a buyback policy once you've sold him your soul. Their only hope is that the lone voices of dissent within the party can convince enough of their colleagues to submit letters of no confidence in the Prime Minister. There has been a steady trickle of publicity announced letters in these days since the Stugate report was published, but will it be enough? Some believe we are edging towards the threshold, pointing out that when Theresa May faces, faced a confidence vote, double the numbers of letters submitted had been those that had been made public. Operation Save Big Dog has been successful so far, but what, at what cost to the Conservative Party? Nobody believes the Prime Minister's phony assertion that he has been humbled by Partygate. 
he is incapable of change. If he somehow makes it through this scandal, it will only be a matter of time before he embroils his party in another. That simple fact must strike fear into the hearts of all those who have supported him throughout the Partygate saga. When it comes to Boris Johnson, their task of defending the indefensible will never be over. If it pains him to do it, if they feel embarrassed by it or damaged by association with a shameless Prime Minister, then that's no less than they deserve for their cowardice. That was a comment piece by Kirsty Strickland. Herald Scotland recorded on Monday 30th of May 2022. Arts and Entertainments. Alison Rowett's TV preview. Making Sense of Cancer with Hannah Fry. Big Antique Adventure with Susan Calman. By Alison Rowett, Senior Politics and Features Writer. Professor Hannah Fry introduces herself on her website as a mathematician, science presenter and all-round badass. If badass means having a gift for making numbers understandable, then the 38-year-old is a badass and then some. As anyone who has read her books or heard BBC Radio 4's The Curious Cases of Rutherford and Fry, or any number of other programmes and podcasts, will know. What you may not know is that just over a year ago, Fry was diagnosed with cervical cancer. As a way of coping what was happening to her, she began charting her experience on camera, once a scientist, etc., the result can be seen in an extraordinary film, Making Sense of Cancer with Hannah Fry, BBC Two, Thursday, 9pm. True to form and character, Fry does exactly what she promises in the title. What she discovers leaves her questioning her assumptions about a disease that will directly affect one in two people in their lifetime. The instinctive response of most patients when faced with cancer is to bring in the medical big guns, cut it out, no hesitation. In Fry's case, doctors recommended a radical hysterectomy. But what of the additional treatments, chemotherapy chief among them, used to ensure the cancer does not come back? Should they be the believable next step, or in some cases do the harms outweigh the benefits? Digging through the numbers and speaking to specialists, Fry learns the choices are not as simple as they first seem. In most cases, surgery will be enough and chemo, with all its debilitating side effects, makes no difference to whether or not the cancer comes back. What doctors and patients cannot predict, however, is who will be in the group that additional therapy does help, so everyone is offered it to be on the safe side. It's not just the side effects of chemotherapy patients have to be wary of. What if the surgery gets rid of the cancer but proves harmful in other ways? Fry starts to wonder whether we're so focused on the best possible thing that could happen that we fail to prepare for what is happening. As she puts it, have we become so afraid of this disease that we'll do anything to fight it no matter the cost? The most powerful moments in the film are the most personal, whether she's speaking alone to camera or interviewing other patients. As she goes through treatment, life in London with her husband Phil and their two young daughters rolls along, the couple keen to keep things as normal as possible. At one point Fry comes to Glasgow for an eye-opening interview with Dr Margaret McCartney, a GP and honorary fellow of the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine. Later in the piece she meets someone who has made the decision not to carry on with treatment. A bold, thought-provoking, intensely moving film that could turn out to be the most important work in Fry's career. A badass indeed. How do you get to be an antiques expert? The question might have crossed your mind as you wander around a car boot sale trying to spot that bit of tat that turns out to be a treasure. You could watch every episode of Antiques Roadshow, now in its 44th series, but a quicker, more enjoyable course is on offer in Big Antique Adventure with Susan Calman, Channel 5, Monday to Friday, 7pm. College for the Scots Comedian and Filmmaker turns out to be Hemswell Antique Centres in Lincolnshire, the biggest of its kind in Europe with some 350 dealers setting up shop there. 
Her lecturers for the week are regular TV experts Danny Sebastian, Paul Martin and Natasha Raskin-Sharp. Over the course of five nights, the trio will show Calman what to look for and, almost as important, what to avoid. She learns the art of haggling, or going in low enough to start a friendly conversation, but not so low that you get the spellers back up. Then there's much to be gained by timing a visit just right, should you go early bird to have your pick of the good stuff, or wait till near closing time when weary vendors are packing all that unsold stuff back in the van. Calman also hears about the antiques of the future, including mobile phones, old VHS videos, really, and arcade games. Some fascinating stuff turns up as the week goes on, including an old Singer sewing machine made in Glasgow. Thanks to the great British sewing bee, second-hand or antiques machines are much sought after, with this one, originally bought for £200, going for a tidy sum. Calman had £150 a day to spend, and at the end of the week, the items will be sold at auction. Will she prove to be the new Lovejoy, or is she more of a Del Boy and Rodney kind of antiques trader? Amid the mountain of daft jokes, there is plenty of solid advice here and a few laughs to be had along the way. Calman takes over Fiona Bruce's gig and roadshow. Stranger things have happened in Teleland. By Alison Rowett. The Herald, Tuesday the 31st of May 2021. News. State Bank spends £175,000 as it searches for new CEO. This article is by Tom Gordon. Scotland's state-owned investment bank is to spend £175,000 on headhunters to help find a new boss after the last one resigned in mysterious circumstances. The £2 billion Scottish National Investment Bank, SNIB, has hired a blue-chip London-based firm to conduct an executive search to replace Chief Executive Ailey McTaggart, who quit abruptly in January after just 18 months in the post. The six-month contract with Spencer Stewart, which was awarded without a standard competitive bidding process, also covers the recruitment of a Chief Investment Officer. The bank said it was value for money, but opposition parties last night questioned the use of so much taxpayers' cash. The bank was recently criticised for paying Ms McTaggart £117,500, half her £235,000 salary, in leave of six months' notice, after she resigned, allowing her free to work elsewhere. SNIB Chair Willie Watt then refused to tell MSPs why Ms McTaggart had left, beyond saying it was for personal reasons. He was also questioned about finding her replacement, telling Holyrood's Economy and Fair Work Committee in March that SNIB planned to use external search consultants. He told MSPs value for money will certainly be a very important criterion in that selection of headhunters. Despite Ms McTaggart quitting on January 27th, the public notification of the contract said it had been struck with extreme urgency and brought about by events unforeseeable. It said for reasons we could not have foreseen, We are in a position where we must recruit senior positions within the bank. The time limits for open procedure, restricted procedure or competitive procedure with negotiation cannot be complied with for these specific positions. We have a contract in place with a recruitment company 
for general recruitment purposes, but that does not extend to an executive search. A worldwide firm specialising in leadership consulting, Spencer Stewart offers a five-stage executive search process covering client priorities, long and short listing of candidates, interviewing, background checks, salary negotiation and follow-up work. The contract runs from April to September, meaning the new full-time CEO may not be in post until spring 2023, more than a year after Ms McTaggart resigned. Chief Financial Officer Sarah Roughhead is currently acting CEO. The SNIB, which went live in November 2020, uses public seed money to support green jobs as the country makes a just transition to a net zero economy. The Scottish Government has said it will provide £2 billion of capital to invest over a decade. Tory MSP Liz Smith said the problems with Scottish National Investment Bank appear never-ending following the shock and costly departure of its CEO. These exorbitant fees paid to headhunters to find her replacement are hard to justify, given such a high-profile and lucrative post ought to attract high-caliber candidates easily enough. 18 months on from its launch by the SNP, the taxpayer continues to pay a hefty price for the crisis-ridden SNIB. Scottish Liberal Democrat MSP Willie Rennie said, The Scottish National Investment Bank was supposed to boost Scottish business, but it looks like the business doing best so far are the headhunters in charge of recruiting senior staff. Leadership is obviously hugely important in a body which is set to oversee up to £2 billion of taxpayers' money, especially in the wake of the resignation of Ailey McTaggart. Many previous Scottish Government economic initiatives have fallen apart at the seams. We cannot afford for this one to go the same way. Nevertheless, it would be better if such vast funds were being funnelled into the bank accounts of small businesses and innovative firms looking to grow rather than the pockets of recruitment consultants. Mr Watt said the contract covers the recruitment of a Chief Executive Officer and Chief Investment Officer. Following a review of existing framework agreements and market testing of a number of executive search agencies, we undertook a negotiation without prior publication procurement process allowing the recruitment for both roles to commence in April. The time limits for open, restricted or competitive procedures with negotiation would have resulted in delays to the recruitment process. It is vital that we reach a broad and diverse spectrum of high-quality candidates for these key leadership roles. Specialist executive search agencies with relevant experience were identified and assessed based on our requirements. The assessment criteria considered cost, alongside proven ability to successfully source high-caliber candidates, given the specialist nature of the skills the bank requires. Overall, we believe the agency selected represents best value for money. It is our plan to have someone enroll by the end of 2022-23, but this will be subject to notice periods. The most important thing is that we attract the right candidates for these roles. 
We have a very capable interim chief executive in place, supported by a strong leadership team. The Scottish Government said the recruitment was a matter for the SNIB. A spokesman said, as an independent financial institution, recruitment is a matter for the board of the Scottish National Investment Bank. This article is by Tom Gordon. From the Herald Scotland, Tuesday the 31st of May 2022, from the Voices section, Neil Mackay, time to stop Ofgem running a cartel for the energy companies. Wherever you look, decency is getting its throat cut. If you've power and money, then you can do whatever the hell you want. But if you're poor and powerless, tough luck sucker, you're going to suffer. Our Prime Minister is a living embodiment of the country we've turned into. A Britain where rules are meaningless for those at the very top, and where riches accrue only to those already with wealth. Where the game is rigged for the chiefs, while the poor get dealt a lousy hand from the bottom of the deck by a conman croupier. Boris Johnson has just rewritten the ministerial code, hobbling the last chance of holding him to account for turning number 10 into Borgia's palace. It's a wonderful, it's wonderfully Hungarian, a form of goulash liberal democracy, where rules are for everyone except the powerful. The same game is playing out in the energy market, which is now fixed for corporations against the customer. Aside from the consumer expert, Martin Lewis, who's fast becoming the only champion the poor have in Britain, there's been barely a voice raised in complaint over some of the very unpleasant changes which Ofgem, the energy regulator, has been making to the market. No, not Ofgem's decision to change the energy price cap four times a year now instead of two, so we'll all get a much more frequent taste of financial agony and fear. Rather, Lewis chose to call Ofgem a F. Exploitative disgrace that sells consumers down the river over new rules around its market stabilisation charge. Put simply, it boils down to this. Ofgem is introducing a new charge for all firms which offer customers cheaper energy deals. So, from now on, if you switch from an expensive supplier to a cheaper supplier, the cheaper supplier will have to pay a fee to the expensive supplier. The effect is clear. It'll become completely uneconomic for the energy companies to offer you cheaper deals. It's nothing less than a running a cartel for energy giants. Ofgem, which should be looking after ordinary people, is wrecking the market for corporations. Clearly, Ofgem's decision to change the price cap every three months rather than every six also adds to corporate profits. If energy companies' costs rise again, then they face less time having to sell electricity or gas at lower prices. That alone acts as a profits accelerator. The new market stabilisation charge just adds more gravy to their plate. For a good primer on the scandal, listen to the BBC's Moneybox programme. Apart from Martin Lewis, the Moneybox team are one of the few digging into what's happening. Moneybox presenter Paul Lewis, one of the most dogged interviewers on radio, teased the full scandal out of Ofgem's Director of Strategy, Neil Kenward, in a jaw-dropping encounter. Mr Kenward says the new charge will require energy suppliers who are gaining customers to make a payment to the losing energy supplier, partially compensating them for the cost of the energy that they've already committed to buying for that consumer. It's as if you regularly shop at Sainsbury's, but because you've now chosen to use Asda, where the prices are lower, Asda has to pay Sainsbury's for the loss of your custom.
and your grocery saving is slashed, you don't have to be Margaret Thatcher to see that's an assaulting competition. The market stabilisation chart robs the customer. So if you or I switch, how much of the price saving do we actually get given this jiggery pokery by Offgem? Answer, not much. Mr Kemmer said the customer gets the first 10% of the price fall. After we get 10%, the rest of the saving is shared between the customer and the energy company, which the customer has just rejected. And what chunk of that other 90% do you or I get? He says the consumer will get 15% of what follows. The arithmetic seems clear. We switch and get about 25% of the saving, while the company we've walked away from gets 75%. Mr. Kamer claims consumers could still save hundreds of pounds, but in its own consultation on the change, Ofgem estimated a short-term cost to consumers of £1.2 billion. Ofgem claims the purpose of the charge is to stop the collapse of energy companies. One might ask, what about the collapse of impoverished families? Morally, how can the regulator preside over such clear manipulation of competition which is loading the dice for big companies and deterring new companies entering the market. As Paul Lewis said, it's almost like a cartel where everyone charges the same price. They cap you, Ofgem, fixed, rather than the competition where rivals can undercut the big players. They can't undercut them as they've got to give the most of them game back to the big rivals. Yet Ofgem continues with the fantasy that consumers are protected and it's a competitive market. When pushed three times on whether Ofgem was lobbied by energy companies, Mr Kenward said, In a sense, you get lobbied by all stakeholders all the time. So we'll just take that as a yes then, shall we? Ofgem has failed across the board. Previously, it presided over the collapse of 30 energy suppliers, then ushered in crippling price rises for customers. Now it's creating a red cartel. Yet Ofgem claims that it's learning lessons. Yes, lessons in how to cause maximum suffering for the British public. Ofgem's intention, says Mr Kenward, is to prevent new entrants pursuing an unsustainable business model. Or, as you and I might say, a business model which is good for us rather than shareholders. Politicians, of late, have been scrabbling around for answers to the tidal wave of financial suffering that is now sweeping over the country. Here's one very simple course of action. Scrap off, Jim. The regulator is clearly unfit for its role. It's a fox in the hen house. Refashion the regulator so it works solely for the consumer, not business, and have government fix the energy price cap so politicians know that if they squeeze us too hard, we vote them out. How can we direct our anger at an anonymous and unaccountable regulator in the pockets of the very corporations it should be protecting us from? And that was an opinion piece by Neil Mackay. Our columns are a platform for writers to express their opinions. They do not necessarily represent the views of the Herald. Recorded from the Herald on the 31st of May 2022. From the sports section. Junior Mountain Bike Champion Charlie Aldridge, determined to go for gold in Commonwealth Games debut, by Graham McPherson. Charlie Aldridge clearly doesn't subscribe to the happy-just-to-be-there approach often adopted by more cautious athletes ahead of their debut at a major event. 
the 2019 World Junior Mountain Bike Champion, was named last week as part of the Team Scotland Cycling Group for the forthcoming Commonwealth Games, a major milestone in the 21-year-old's fledgling career. Aldrich is quietly spoken and polite to a fault, but evidently has a clear focus on what he wants to achieve and a steely confidence in his ability to get there. The cross-country event at the Games, set to take place in the Cannock Chase Forest near Birmingham, is expected to attract a high-caliber field, but Aldridge sees no reason why it shouldn't be him ascending to the top step of the podium come its conclusion. It was pretty exciting to have that news announced last week that I'd made the team for the Commie Games as I'd known for a while but couldn't say anything, he reveals. I told my family and a few mates but I had to tell them not to put it on social media until it was official, which it is now. And it's only a couple of months away so now, so it's almost upon us. I'm looking forward to being part of Team Scotland and getting to know some of the athletes from other sports and all supporting each other, which will be interesting outside of the cycling bubble. They're building a new course for it in Canuck Chase, which should be a good, and I know that area pretty well, which can only help. It's my first Games, but I'm going to be aiming to get a medal. That's my goal. I'm expecting it's going to be a congested field, but you've got to go for gold, don't you? If you're going to enter a race, then I think you should be trying to win it if you can. I've had a pretty decent season so far. I've had a few wins on home soil and got 10th in the World Cup as well, so I've been pleased with how it's been going, despite a short setback when I got COVID. There are a lot of more races happening again and that's helped me. Some people can train hard for training's sake, but I'm someone who needs that end goal of a competition to keep me going. The longer term picture looks appealing too. Aldridge was at Glen... Tress Forest in the Tweed Valley yesterday to mark the region being named as the ninth host of both the mountain bike cross country and marathon events at next year's UCI Combined Cycling World Championships. It's shaping up to be a significant event in the 2023 calendar and the Creef based rider is determined to be part of it. I've been riding this track for a while now so it's great it's getting this international recognition and is going to be used for such a major event added Aldridge, who was crowned under-18's Scottish champion around Glentress in 2018. The plans look great and I really want to be involved if I can. This is my last year in the under-23s, so I'm really wanting to make that step up next year. Having the opportunity to compete in a world championships in front of a home crowd would be an incredible experience and it would be a dream come true to pull on a rainbow jersey. Glentress is known as being a brilliant destination for mountain biking, and I think the riders and fans will be in for a real treat next year. Like many in his position, Aldridge is trying to juggle gaining an education while advancing his sporting aspirations at the same time. He has just completed his second year studying mechanical engineering at Edinburgh University, happy to be back home for the summer and able to spend more time on bike and less with his head in the books. It's been a bit of a stress juggling everything, but I'm getting there, he adds. My studies are going okay, although it's pretty hard at times. I'm still able to cycle a lot, thankfully. The Pentland Hills are great for the mountain bike, or I can just get the road bike out and head around locally. There are some good spots around Edinburgh. Home for me is still Creef, so that's where I'm based now for the summer, and I can just concentrate on cycling for a few months and not have to worry about lectures and exams for a while. That article was by Graham McPherson. And that was this week's The Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.